If you're a guest with us and you're new, my name is Alex. I'm the pastor of Cascades. Our heartbeat is to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus and his way. And right now, we are going through a series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's based on a book by a guy named Peter Scazzaro. And I'm going to be drawing a ton this morning from his book. Now, this series is really about us opening up our whole selves to God so that we may become the people he wants us to become, so that we may experience the fullness of life that he intends for us. And if that's going to happen, we need to recognize and embrace the fact that God has birthed us into specific families at a specific time, at a particular place and moment in our history. And we have to acknowledge that while we're, we're adults, responsible for our lives, and we have freedom to make many decisions, we do not get to decide what families we're born into. We don't get to decide what our family history is. We don't get to decide what our family will or won't teach us and model to us. For every single person in this room, our family, the people who raise us, they've imprinted a way of behaving and thinking into us. And a significant amount of it wasn't taught. It was just caught by virtue of just being in that family. And if we're going to become the people who increasingly look like Jesus, we must look back to our families of origin and recognize the gifts we received and also the patterns of sin and brokenness and then allow Jesus to begin to set us free from these things. Only then can we begin to live lives of love that God intends for us. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a family found in Scripture that shows and highlights this dynamic of these gifts or blessings and also those patterns of sin. And we learn about this family in the book of Genesis. Genesis starts with the story of God's creative purposes for the world. That he creates the world and he calls it good. That he creates human beings in his image to reflect his love and receive his love and show what he's like to the world. And this good that God declares about the world is quickly ruptured by sin. In fact, following humanity's decision to live without reference to God, we see two threads that start to weave through the story of Scripture. We see creation unraveling, falling into chaos. Brokenness and conflict is present as human sin begins to spread. You just see that thread throughout the story but on the second, this other thread, which is the first thread, is actually that God created the world with a purpose. And now he intends to put things to rights in the world. To bless humanity by rescuing and restoring them. And God starts this with this one family, and it starts in Genesis 12. With Abraham and his wife Sarah. And eventually, you see it come to fruition this thread in Jesus, but it starts with Abraham and Sarah, and then their children, their grandkids, great-grandkids, and you see these strands of sin and God's promise to bless just weave through. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at just a couple moments in this family's story. The first one comes from Genesis chapter 12, starting in verses 1 through 4. And what I'm going to do is pray, and then we'll read that passage. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your son Jesus, who makes life in you possible. And he brings us into your family, Lord. And then he begins to show us 
the ways that your family works. And so we pray that this morning we would have ears to hear from you, hearts to respond, and that we would receive the grace and tender kindness that you have for us. In your name we pray, amen. Genesis 12 reads, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. So here's this promise. Abraham is living not uh, in what we would think of today as Palestine but or Israel at all. What we hear is that he's in this other place. If you read earlier, you, you discover he lives in Ur, which would be in modern like uh, Mesopotamia. And so he's back there, and God calls him to this land he's never been to. He says, look, I'm going to bless you and make you a gift to all these nations. Abraham doesn't have any kids at this point. And he goes. He's probably in his 70s, like 75 or so. And he goes. And immediately following this promise and Abraham's obedience, we're told in verse 10 of chapter 12, this. He comes to the land that God has promised. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you're my sister. Okay. So that you will be treated, so I will be treated well for your sake. And my life will be spared because of you. Abram's afraid tells Sarah to do something pretty suspect, tells her to lie. Uh, she does. We're told that the Egyptians see her, see her beauty, and Pharaoh takes her as his wife into his palace. Pharaoh also treats Abraham well, gives him a bunch of animals, different things. But eventually, Pharaoh discovers that Sarah is actually married to Abraham. And Pharaoh figures this out because what he has happened, he experiences a ton of diseases and illnesses. Pharaoh confronts Abraham, says, take your wife and leave. Don't want you around here. Now, this is messed up on multiple levels. If you've ever, like, thought about Scripture and the way it presents people, it doesn't typically hide people's sin. It doesn't typically hide their warts. It doesn't matter if they're supposed to be people who have these beautiful moments of faith or love or care. They also reveal deep, dark brokenness. You see that here in Abraham. So we see lies, we see fear, we see marital dysfunction. Now, if you fast forward in the story of Genesis and you come to Genesis 26, Sarah and Abraham have had a son, Isaac. And Isaac grows up, gets married to Rebecca. Look what happens with Isaac. We're going to read Genesis chapter 1, or sorry, 26 verse 1, and then we're going to read verse 7. This is what it says. Now, there was a famine in the land. Sounds kind of similar. Not the same famine, we're told. Besides the previous famine of Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. God tells Isaac not to go to Egypt, but to stay in the land. And he promises to be with him and bless him in these verses in between. And then in verse 7, we're told, when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Yeah, we've seen this before. Because he was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. Exact same lie, different location, same family. Same sin, one generation later. 
When you read the story of Genesis and you learn about Abraham and his family and his descendants, you start to pick up these patterns that are present in his family. That despite God's promise to bless Abraham and, and the nations through his family, there's also this other theme at work. Abraham lies twice about his wife Sarah. Isaac, their son, marries Rebekah, and their marriage was marked by lies. Then their son, Isaac and Rebekah's son, Jacob, lived much of his life lying and deceiving people. And one of the meanings of his name is deceiver or one that grasps. And he lived much of his life in that way. Jacob goes on to have 12 sons. Ten of them lie about their younger brother Joseph's death. They faked a funeral for him. They kept the family secret for over a decade. And each generation, when you look at this, this family, you see that there was one parent usually favoring a child more than another. In each generation, brothers experienced being cut off from one another. In each generation, there was, was marked by this poor intimacy in their marriage. There's these patterns we see that are present. And the thing about Scripture is that it's, it's our story, too. And what we get drawn into is actually recognizing that God wants to do something in our lives. They may not be our exact same sins, things we struggle with, but there's a similar experience in all of us of these things that seem to repeat in our families. And the blessings and sins of our families going back two to three generations profoundly impact who we are today. And the reality is that many of these patterns of behaving, thinking, relating to others far more often are caught than they are taught. They're not explicit or spoken. It was unspoken, modeled. But because of that, we all carry, we'll often have our own sense of ten, family, uh, ten commandments that we inherited from our family that guide us even to this day. Even if they're contrary to the way of Jesus, you may identify as a follower of Jesus, and yet there's these things that seem to guide the way we look at certain items in our life. And what we need to do is reflect on the messages that were handed down to us, <clears throat> submitting them to Jesus and his way. So what are some of these messages that you received in your life? Well, I want to walk through seven um, and allow you just to re reflect on them. And I have no idea if I'm going to make it through because my throat is so itchy right now. So, Lord have mercy. <clears throat> money. Money. Some of us were told that money was the best source of security. And not, we weren't told explicitly, but that's what we caught. And so every time you make a big expense, you feel fear. Because you feel like you're giving up security. Others heard, the more you have, the more important you are. Perhaps when, it's, when it relates to conflict, you learned you should avoid conflict at all costs. Don't get people mad at you. When you feel like you do, you feel like you've failed. Um, perhaps it was loud, angry, and constant fighting is normal. So when you do it, you don't think it's a very big deal. And you find that as an easy way to deal with conflict. Maybe when it comes to sex, you hurt. <coughs> Have mercy, Lord. <clears throat> this, apparently, I'm not supposed to talk about sex, guys. I don't know what it is. Sure, that would be great. <clears throat> Thanks, Angela. Come to the rescue. Um, <clears throat> 
Sex shouldn't be talking, talked about openly. That's something we learned. Or that men can be promiscuous, women cannot. Or maybe that sexuality and marriage will come really easily. There's different messages we may have heard in our lives. When it comes to anger, some learned anger is dangerous and bad. Others live with this idea that to explode in anger and make a good point is, is totally appropriate and healthy. Just explode to sh- prove the point you're trying to make. Still others... This one hits a little bit close. Uh, Sarcasm is an acceptable way to release anger. Family. Family. When it came to, uh, to our family, some of us were taught that you don't talk about your family's dirty laundry ever. You never bring shame to your family's name by talking about it or doing something that will embarrass your family. Responsibility. You have a responsibility to your family and your culture and that comes before everything else. And that was something that may have been explicit, but often it's implicit. Cultures or, or other races, maybe you learned you don't marry someone from, your, uh, from a different culture or different race. They're too different, and they'll never work. Some, some you, may, you may have learned, like, well, certain cultures, they're just not as good as mine. Or you should only, and you can only be close to people who are like you. We all receive different messages and I'm not saying this is anyone in particular. I'm just trying to give you examples. Success. Success became making a lot of money. So getting married and having kids or getting into the best school or here in Vancouver, owning a house. So if you don't own a house, you're not successful, and so you're living in that terrible pain. Finally, feelings and emotions. Some of us learned your feelings don't matter. And re- or the opposite, reacting with your feelings without thinking is okay. Or you're just not allowed to have certain feelings. We talked about that last week. Sadness needs to stay in that circle. Sadness does that, you're golden. But it could be about other things in life, like singleness or marriage or physical affection and how that's expressed. Or about grief and loss. Or how parents are supposed to respond to their children's needs when they do well or when they misbehave. See, we carry within us certain opportunities and gifts simply because we were born into our specific family. But we also carry within us things that get called baggage. And I was trying to think like of an analogy, and it's like, imagine all of us get a bag. And some of us have bigger bags than others. And some of our bags have more useful things in them. Things that actually enable us to access other things, to do other things, just because we were born into that family. But some of us also just get burdens that we carry with us. And because we were born into that family, we just don't think very much about it. It's just the norm for us. And so you live your life just carrying it all the time. And what Jesus wants to do is begin to actually gently and kindly begin to actually walk you through what's in your bag, that baggage of life, whether it's good or bad, and actually like pull it out. And I don't have anything that's sketchy in here <clears throat> uh, and nothing really all that useful for the moment as an illustration or non-useful. Even. But um, yeah, but he wants to take it out and imagine he wants to give us a way of actually looking at our lives and the things that we have and give us eyes to see them in a new light. Eyes that see them through his lens. And they're not going to be a lens that condemn, 
but lens that actually enable us to experience life to the full. That enable us to acknowledge this was a loss in your life and you have to acknowledge it. But I want to show you a new way. I want to show you a new way of walking with me. He wants to show us the weight we've been carrying that we're so used to it doesn't even feel like weight anymore. He wants to take us back to those places where we first had the weight added to our bag and then begin to heal, forgive, and speak words of life to us so that we can walk in this new way. And in this way, following Jesus is the putting off of the sinful patterns and habits of our families of origin and then relearning how to do life Jesus' way in God's family. So if we believe that, if we know that, and I'd say this isn't really like news to many of us, maybe it is, great. But if we know that how come we don't really do it very much? Like why is it we can be following Jesus, say 20 years, you read your Bible, you pray, you come to church, you sing songs, you serve, yet there's these things you're still doing that you're like, I don't want to do them. Yet I keep doing it. And now my kids are showing me that I do it. And you just feel this sense of, oh, it's still there. It's still present. Why is it so hard for us to go back in this way? I think one is just hard. It's hard to go back. You follow Jesus long enough and you'll make a discovery that doing all those things I just listed, joining a community group, learning to worship, even learning your spiritual gifts, those are easy when compared to the deeply ingrained messages and habits and ways of behaving that we were taught in our families. There are all these unspoken rules, ways of seeing and feeling that have become so much a part of us, we just cannot really even easily see them to begin with. Secondly, some of us actually feel like we are betraying our families. And this is especially true if you come from a cultural background where there's a great emphasis placed on honor. Some of you were explicitly taught, don't do anything to dishonor your family name. Going back to uncover some of the broken and sinful patterns of your family feels like you're airing out your dirty laundry. It just doesn't feel right. More specifically, you've been taught that you're bringing shame upon your family. And because of that, it feels like you're actually betraying them. So of course you wouldn't want to do that. And third, it's painful. Looking to the past informs our present, but it feels like you're pushing on a bruise. And depending on how bad it is, it can be an open wound. It just doesn't feel good. Why would you want to do it? The all-too-common practice for us is to compartmentalize our spirituality. We disconnect following Jesus from certain parts of our life and our family. And so that stream that we talked about last week, that stream of living water that Jesus promises will flow from your life, does not flow into every part because we've actually tried to keep him out of those areas. I've had that happen, like coming back to the backpack. My backpack's got a few different pouches, got this one here and then like three on the inside. And there are times where I cannot find something in here. And it's actually weighing my bag down. And it's not like, it looks empty, but I can feel weight. So I got to start looking through the compartments. And there's something like that in our lives 
where we may actually not recognize that there's a weight that's in there, even though we're like, oh, I feel like life's pretty good, taking care of it. But there's this extra weight that we're traveling with. And I think that's what we, what we do when we compartmentalize our life. We carry more weight than what Jesus intends. I remember when I was 19 years old, started taking following Jesus seriously. And very soon after that, I became aware that there were wounds that I had not brought to Jesus. Bitterness that lingered at people who hurt me. And shame I carried because I had not brought it into the light with Jesus. And as a result, I was carrying this extra weight. And it was painful. And for me, I finally came to a point where the pain of staying the same was worse than the pain of actually making a change in my life. I had been living my life with these deeply entrenched parts of me that were untouched by the power and the love of Jesus. I wanted healing. I wanted freedom. And I believed that he was offering that to me. Here's the thing. I didn't realize the extent to which they weighed on me. I knew they were there, but I didn't know how much it affected me. It affected the way I related to others, God, myself, and it affected how I dealt with my pain until I began to allow Jesus to come and lift them out of my life. It wasn't until after I worked through forgiving others, receiving God's forgiveness, trying to make amends, that I experienced a newfound lightness and joy, and I remember being surprised at how light I felt after working through that. Because I didn't realize how much it had actually weighed me down. Until I walked through it, then I'm like, wow. Why do I feel so much more joyful this week? The week following actually having gone through that. Since getting married and then having kids, I've since discovered there's more. I thought I was done. More he wants to unpack. More he wants to release me of. And this is what Jesus wants to do in all of our lives. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ is that our past does not determine our future, that he does. And so we have these pasts where we receive gifts, blessings, and also challenges, these patterns of sin, these ways of relating that are not healthy or helpful. And what Jesus says is, look, that past will not determine your future in me. You can follow me into a new way of living. And yet if you're like me, there are parts of your story, our story we wish never happened. We wish they weren't part of our story. Parts we don't understand why they happened. You say, God, I don't want this as my story. I want you, but I want a different story, Jesus. More specifically, I want a different past. Because this just feels too hard. I don't know how to actually make it through this. I don't want to sin in this way. I don't want to do the things I do. I want a different story. And this summer, I heard this song by a band called King's Kaleidoscope called Story. And it reframed this for me. It was just helpful. And there's this short refrain they say, which says, You don't need a different story. Heaven only holds us broken as hell. Living a tale of glory, it's a miracle becoming yourself. Now, the band, they're, they're believers, and they're saying, Look, you don't need this different story. We need to live more deeply into the wondrous tale of glory that Jesus has actually written. You don't hold the pen of your life. No one does but Jesus. You don't need a different story. You need to see that he has written you into his story. And it's a story that he calls good. 
And his story does not erase all the moments of the past, all the things from our families of origin. He doesn't say those evil things were good. But what he is able to do, if you will turn to him and let him, is turn what was once meant for evil for good. What hurts you, he can actually use that and, and ter- use that, bring that into a place where you experience his love and healing, where he exchanges shame for grace, where he speaks a new word of life, where there was sadness, confusion, and loss. The tale of glory that Jesus invites you and I to live in is the tale of God, the author, entering into the story, his story, and identifying with humanity and suffering on our behalf and dying for us so that we could be made alive with him, so that we could be set free. It's a tale of being brought into a new family, God's family, with a new way of living. How? When Mark 3, verse 33, Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister. Those who choose to sit at the feet of Jesus, those who choose to orient their lives around knowing Jesus, being with him and becoming like him, doing what he does, are brought into his family. Paul will later flesh out what it means for Christians to be brought into the family of God in Ephesians chapter 1. And he says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. And then he'll go on to talk about how God adopted us into his family, gave us a new identity, children of God, gave you new siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ. He forgave the debt of sin. He set you free from sin's power over your life. He gave you a new inheritance, and the Holy Spirit is the first installment of that. And the task of being a follower of Jesus, is actually learning to live in that new reality. It's learning to live as members of God's family in the way of Jesus. It's learning to appropriate this new life we have. So what does it look like to go back in order to go forward? How do we begin to unpack our backpack? Well, I think if you look at the story of Genesis, we actually are given a model in the life of Joseph. You guys know the family line. Joseph is the son of Jacob. Jacob, the son of Isaac. Isaac's the son of Abraham. And his story, basically from Genesis 37 to 50, it centers on God leading Joseph into an emotionally and spiritually healthy place, making him an emotionally and spiritually mature human being. It's 25% of the whole book of Genesis is devoted to this guy, and his life, and what God does. And when we first meet him, he's a 17-year-old guy. He's the youngest of 11 brothers. He lives in a blended family. Sorry, youngest of 10, of the 11. He lives in a blended family with his dad, Jacob, who has two wives, two concubines. He's immature. He's arrogant, unaware of how his words and these dreams he seems to be having are actually alienating him from his brothers. And their hatred of of Joseph leads them to fake his death, saying a wild animal killed him. Instead, they actually sell him off into slavery, and he's taken to Egypt, and his brothers hope they'll never see him again. One day, Joseph, in that one day, Joseph loses his parents. 
all of his siblings, his language, his culture, freedom, and more. And then in Egypt, he would be falsely accused by his master's wife of assault and then imprisoned for 10 to 13 years. If there's someone who should have grown bitter, angry at his family, at people he trusted, at God, for all of the pain, Joseph seems like a very good candidate. Yet somehow Joseph sought God and he loved God. And we're told in Genesis 39 that the Lord was with Joseph through this time. One night, out of nowhere, through an interpretation of a dream, he was taken out of the prison cell he was in into the palace with Pharaoh and made the second person in command of Egypt. He still would walk with God all the way through the ends of his life. To, and yet what we learn in his story is that he partnered with God in being a blessing to his family of origin, blessing to Egypt and to the world. And he honored and blessed the very family that betrayed him. And if you've never read his story, I'd encourage you to read it. It starts in Genesis 37. And I just want to highlight four things that we can see in his life that I think can be helpful if you're going to go and look back that you need to remember. One is don't lose sight of God's greatness in your life. When Joseph's brothers finally meet him because there's a famine, they have to come and ask for food. They go down to Egypt where they know there is food. <clears throat> Joseph says something remarkable to his brothers when he begins to confront them and talk to them. In Genesis 45, verse 8, he says, So then it was not you who sent me down here speaking to his brothers, but it was God. He recognized that God was at work in his life. And he maybe didn't see, obviously, that very day that he's, you know, been sold into slavery. But through time, he's been able to see this different perspective of what God has been doing. He recognized God was at work in his life in spite of human efforts. And God was bringing about his good purposes. And when we surrender to Jesus, God's able to weave all the different mistakes we've made in life, every sin, every detour, into his story of grace and blessing. We need to remember that. Secondly, we need to admit the sadness and losses of our family. Going back hurts, and it often feels like things get worse rather than better at first as you begin to actually face it. When Joseph is reunited with his family— there were great tears and sadness. He doesn't cover it up, although he kind of tries a little bit, but he, he, he weeps so much. We're told in uh, Genesis 45, verse 2, we're told this, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and, the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's household heard it about it. Joseph did not minimize his losses. See, the temptation we all have is to say, look, yeah, sure, this happened in my life, but it wasn't that bad. I still had a home. I still had food on the table. As if you, you, it can't be both. As if you, you can't say, I, I, I did have a home. I did have food on the table. But one of my parents wasn't emotionally present in my life, and it impacts me to this day. It can be both. Sometimes we try to minimize those losses, and you don't have to do that. You don't have to say that it didn't cost you anything. It did. And it's healthy to acknowledge that and to grieve that loss. He was grieved by what his brothers did to him, and he also forgave his brothers. He could say, yeah, you, like, God actually sent me down here without minimizing what his brothers did. 
You're not betraying your family. You're actually honoring Jesus by going back and uncovering the sin and bringing it into the light. You are walking in the way of Jesus when you allow yourself to be grieved and weep by your losses. Third, let Jesus be the author of your story. It's so easy to make declarative statements about our story, about our identity because of our past. My life is a mistake. I'm worthless. I don't have purpose. Unresolved pain often contributes to these kinds of scripts that we say to ourselves. But if you're in Christ, if you put your hope in him, he holds the pen to the story of your life. And he calls it good. And he says you are his and you are a beloved child of God. There are scripts that were put into the backpack in the past. And Jesus says it's time to get rid of them. Because he's writing a new story and that is not how he sees you. Learn the story of God. Spend time in it. Do. And as you do, you begin to discover that even those in the wounds, God can bring about good. Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, he says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, through Joseph, he's able to actually take care of his whole family and take care of many others because he didn't just take care of his family. He took care of Egypt and making sure that there was enough food when that famine hit. You, my brothers, you guys wanted to hurt me. You meant this for evil. God actually wanted to bring about good. See that Jesus is the author of the story. And because you are in him, he can actually bring about good even in the pain and even in the wound. Finally, join Jesus in being a blessing. In the very next verse, Genesis 50 verse 21, he says to them, So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I think this is an incredible transformation that this person who's been so wounded by his own family, who wanted to kill him, who debated, should we or should we, should we leave him in this, this well or should we? No, let's not leave him there. Let's just sell him off to, into slavery. He can say to them, confronting them, knowing what they did, they're afraid they're going to be killed or put in prison. And he says, don't be afraid. I will provide for you. I know you need. I will provide for you and your little ones. And then he comforts them and speaks kindly to them. And in this moment, Joseph is showing the very heart of God. God's heart towards humanity. God's heart towards our brokenness. Don't be afraid. I'll provide for you. And he comforts them and speaks kindly. Joseph could have cursed them from this position of power that he had. He could have imprisoned them, but he chooses to forgive. He welcomes them, and he, and he cares for them. And we're told that he would take care of their financial, emotional, and spiritual needs until the day that he died. He saw how God sent him ahead of his family to save them. Joseph trusted God in these dark moments of his life. So that when these opportunities to bless came up, Joseph actually got to join God in being that blessing. He blessed Egypt through his agricultural planning, and he blessed his family with forgiveness, provision, and protection. 
And you and I may not have Joseph's story. Hopefully we don't. It doesn't seem like the most exciting. And yet at the same time, all of us get opportunities to demonstrate mercy and grace and forgiveness, to care for others even though they did not show that to us. But unless we actually go back and allow Jesus to walk us through that, to bring healing into our life, to call out the scripts that we've been believing that were never from him, it's going to be really hard to be a people who can demonstrate this kind of grace. And that's why we get to come to communion. <clears throat> because in communion, we receive a new script. In communion, we're reminded of the story that God has written us into. And it is a story of mercy. It's a place where we come before him, encounter Jesus. And it is not a place where, and a table for painless stories. It's a table for those with wounds, losses, and scripts that they no longer want to carry. It is a table for those who want Jesus to enter in and speak a new word of life, comfort, and healing. And what I want to do is just give us some time to meet with Jesus now before we take this meal. And if you identify as a follower of Jesus, I welcome you to partake in this. Because I believe Jesus wants you to know you don't have to carry these things anymore. And he wants to help you remove these out of that backpack that you've been carrying so that you can experience what it is like to walk with lightness. So what we're going to do is the same thing we did last week. We'll just spend a few moments in silence. And I'm going to ask some questions and then leave silence for the Lord to highlight answers to you. So Lord Jesus, we come to you now. We know that you long to give us life and life to the full. That you say that whoever believes in you will have streams of living water flowing from their heart. From the very center of who they are. And we want to experience that, Jesus. So right now I ask that you would show us where you want to take us back to. if it's a wound or a script or something that we've been living in that you no longer want us to walk in, something we've received by in our families. Jesus, what would you have us know about this thing that you brought up?
Jesus, what would you want to give your people in place of that? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. That on the cross you made salvation possible for all of us. And that your death has brought us back to life. And that by your wounds, healing is possible. And that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. That your grace is enough for us. That in this meal, we get to be reminded that you actually give us beauty for our ashes. That we can mourn, and yet we can also experience joy. Because you have come and written us into your story. And so, Jesus, thank you for laying down your life for us. Out of your love for us, we receive your love now.